Lord, we come to you this morning once again grateful that as your people we can gather and sit at your feet and hear from your word and see how we might adjust, how the Holy Spirit might call us to adjust and give us the power to do so. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would take our minds now and think through them, take my lips and truly speak through them, take our wills and Bend them to your will and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Ivy Lee in the 1930s was a management consultant and a very aggressive and very self-confident man. And somehow... He got a meeting and an interview with Charles Schwab, the Charles Schwab of Bethlehem Steel, uh, who was no less assured and less confident and one of the most powerful men of the world at the time. So during the conversation, Lee asserted that if the management of Bethlehem Steel would adopt and follow his advice, the company's operations would be greatly improved and profits greatly increased. Schwab responded, well, if that would be true, I'll hear your case and I'll gladly listen. And if it works, I'll pay you whatever you ask for within reason. So Lee handed Schwab a blank piece of paper and said, write down the most important things you have to do tomorrow and number them in priority and then tomorrow as you get up and you come to work start with number one and then after you've completed number one go to number two and so on and so forth and if you don't complete them all that's okay just the one you didn't complete is number one for the next day and then as new tasks come about you can reprioritize try it as long as you like and then Send me a check when you find out the results. You know, you hear that story and you go, really? I mean, gosh, uh, you know, Alexander the Great probably did that. I mean, you know, this is not rocket science, it seems. But weeks went by, and in the mail to Ivy Lee came a check for $25,000, which in the 1930s was a heck of a lot of money. He said it was the most profitable lesson he ever learned in business management, if you can believe it. And in our cold-hearted American business culture, uh, there are a few lessons more important than learning how to prioritize our lives and live by those priorities. Uh, the degree of one's expertise in this matter is directly related to the success or failure of one's life, I'm sure. But honestly, on a much higher, more important, and more personal level, how well we as Christians recognize and maintain spiritual priorities bears incalculable consequences for our present lives as well as our eternity. Sadly, some have never given a second thought to their lives' priorities according to Jesus Christ. Others have, but they've chosen the wrong priorities. And still others 
have the right priorities and perspectives and yet do not have the self-control or self-wisdom or whatever to live by them. Today's scene in John's Gospel sets the matter straight for Peter and for all of us who would call themselves Christians. I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 21 where in the great Charles Simeon expository preaching technique we left off in verse 14, we're going to go to verse 15. I love it. Because this is going to encourage us and give us some victory. The curtain lifts and the backdrop is where we left off last week, the morning lit Sea of Tiberias in Galilee. And the foreground is a rocky beach with a glowing fire with our six, seven principal characters. Chief among them, our good buddy Peter, seated around a fire. And the key to understanding this text that is about to transpire is an appreciation for what Peter is feeling at this point. For while Peter made the greatest profession in church history, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he also denied even knowing Jesus three times after Jesus' arrest. And in the wake of his denial, Peter's master had been brought out from the inner chamber and their eyes met. And as soon as their eyes met, the rooster crowed. It's one of the most painful events one could ever imagine. The agony of that moment with the rooster crowing in Jesus's unblinking eyes, omniscient eyes looking directly into his heart. And we know Peter went out and wept bitterly. But his tears, no matter how many tears he cried, probably couldn't wash away that memory. It's still with him. As he's standing there, sitting there, eating fish and bread and dripping wet from his swim. He couldn't forget that awful thing that he had done. And I'm sure he wondered, could, could it ever be what it was before? Could, it, could I ever be useful to the Lord like I was before? I mean... Peter had been there. I mean, he saw the empty tomb. He was there when Jesus appeared and said, peace be with you. But could Peter ever be disqualified from faithful service to Jesus? Would his heart ever indeed know the peace that surpasses all understanding ever again? Last week, we saw Peter and John and those other disciples travel 80 miles from Galilee up to Capernaum again and and I'm sure that fishing trip was quite therapeutic, smelling the, the water and the breeze and the sea and the nets and the boat. And so here he is, but I'm sure on one level, Peter was not all better. He had failed his Lord. He doubted his own fidelity and his own ability to walk with Jesus and minister to others. And he wondered if he could ever be used again. You ever felt that way? If you haven't, you need to check your pulse. Or you need to wake up, all right? 
Have you ever denied Jesus at a family setting? That awkward conversation around the Thanksgiving table or a co-worker's lunch table? Somebody says something inaccurately about Jesus Christ or God and you're silent about it? Or maybe you, you had the foot-in-the-mouth disease and you spoke a little too much, you know, getting before the Holy Spirit to somebody? You know, my friends, Peter needed a touch, as we all do sometimes. And God has used this text to touch many sons and daughters throughout the centuries. I know it's been used in my life. One of the most helpful passages in all the scriptures because it takes me back to the foundation of my faith. Because it helps me assess where I really am. And instructs me on how to get my life straight once more. So what we learn first in this passage is that for us to get our priorities straight, first the Lord has to open us up. First, let's look at this. Breakfast is finished. They're all sitting around looking at one another. Who's going to speak first? And Jesus breaks the ice. And I'm sure Peter's heart must have skipped a beat when he heard the words in verse 15. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus is asking in that question, Simon, do you truly unconditionally love me? Agape love. After all that's happened, and you know what's happened, Peter. After all that's happened, can you really say that you unconditionally love me more than these guys? Okay? John does not say what ran through Peter's mind, but can, you can imagine, right? I'm sure his stomach churned, his face blushed, probably tears welled up in his eyes. And this, this question is tense, and this scene is tense for several reasons. First, he called him Simon, son of John, not Peter. You know, the way the Lord addressed him intentionally called into question his title of Peter, the rock. His personal message was, Peter, do you remember who you were before I met you? You remember your, do you remember your weakness? The question, though motivated by love, was intended to hurt, and it did. So Jesus also asked Peter if he loved him more than the other disciples. That's the second reason why this is tense. Because you remember, right, during Holy Week, Peter was the one who said, I'll lay down my life for you. Even though they fall away, I will never fall away. And furthermore, they're around a charcoal fire. It was before a charcoal fire that he denied Jesus three times. Heard the rooster crow. See, you can imagine what's going through Peter's mind here. As he asked him, do you love these more than these? It's, it's a mercifully brutal question. And so Peter answers in verse 15, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But he didn't say agape. He said phileo. I love you, Lord, with an affectionate, adoring, 
we've been through so much together, love. I love you. But I, but I can't say I love you unconditionally after all my failures and disgraces. I can't say that. See, God opens us up to remove our presumptions. And Peter's presumptions are gone now. And so then the Lord charged him, feed my lambs. And all these commissions that he gives him it basically means serve me and whatever I call you to do. But Jesus isn't through in this surgical procedure. He asks him the second time, Simon, verse 16, son of John, do you love me? That is, dropping all comparisons now. Dropping all your comparisons. Do you love me? That's the bottom line. We could be sure that people are starting to squirm right now around the fire. As the smoke is wafting, you know, these guys are going, man, this is uncomfortable. Yeah, it is. Peter carefully and quietly answered, Lord, you know that I love you. But again, he professed a profound affection, not a full-blown love. Now, some would criticize Peter, excuse me, Peter's answer, you know, do you agape love me with phileo love? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone has no phileo, friendship, love for Jesus, let him be accursed. This is the way we love God. Okay? Friendship love is wonderful. And again, Jesus' gentle response was, tend my sheep. There's a stark honesty in Jesus' questioning, but his words are gracious. They are. Jesus is doing something wonderful here for Peter. So verse 17, he asks him one more time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time Jesus doesn't say agape. He says, do you friendship love me? Literally, do you have a friendship love? Band of brothers love, Peter. We've been through all this together. Do you really have that love that you're saying that you have? And the Lord took Peter at his word. See, that first question challenged Peter's superiority of his love. The second question challenged Peter whether Peter had any love at all for Jesus. And the third question challenged Peter's claim to have this affectionate love. So verse 17 says Peter was grieved. You know, when you grieve, it's a profound sadness combined with just great, great emotion. But Peter steadfastly answered, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you with a friendship love. God, you know where I am who I am, what I've claimed, you know, I don't dare to claim any more than that. Peter loved Jesus with the deepest of loves, but his presumptions, his illusion about who he is before God is totally gone. And the Lord accepted that and gives him his final commission, feed my sheep. This response displayed a deep love that Jesus had for Peter. 
And the result is what happens to us all after he opens us up. Complete restoration of relationship. And it's complete restoration in front of witnesses. Because <laughs> wait a few weeks, my friends. Peter's going to be our man. It's so exciting to see what God does with him. And this restoration is accomplished. And now they probably understood the Lord had, had planned it all. Peter's denials bef happened before fire. His confessions were before a charcoal fire. His commissions were before a, a charcoal fire. Three denials, three confessions, three gracious commissions. And Christ is saying to each and every one of us this morning, through Peter's example, that the greatest priority of our lives, number one on our sheet, is the nature and primacy of our love for God. Here we see a man who had loved God with all his heart and needed to be affirmed in that love before he could ever serve fruitfully again. And some of us may love God dearly and others may not, but the abiding principle, principle is that before all things, even our ministry to him, even our Christian service to him, is to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love him to be in him before we do anything. And it's the first question for every Christian, from the greatest theologian to the person running the vacuum after the potluck. It's the number one question for all of us. And if we're not asking that question, I wonder if we're a Christian at all. And so, therefore, it leads us to complete restoration when we say, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. And notice what Jesus ends the text with. Follow me. Doesn't tell him where he's going. Just, just follow me. I'll guide your steps. Totally restored. And my friends, we're all called to follow him. We're all called to serve him. But we can't serve him before we love him and be in him. Okay? It's so dangerous for those of us who take our faith seriously. Roy Hessian in his book, I Would See Jesus, says it this way. Service seems so unselfish, whereas concentrating on our walk with God seems selfish and self-centered. But it's the very reverse. The things that God is most concerned about are our coldness of heart towards himself and our proud, unbroken natures. Christian service of itself can and so often does leave our self-centered nature untouched. With those things hidden in our hearts, we have to only walk alongside others and we find resentment, hardness, criticism, jealousy, and frustration issuing from our hearts. We think we're working for God, but the test of how little our service is for him is revealed by our resentment or self-pity. We need to leave our lusting for ever larger spheres of Christian service and concentrate on seeing God for ourselves and finding the deep answer for life in him. 
we get it backwards, don't we? We do. We do before we be, but it's a deadly trap when we do so. And we need to take this seriously, my friends, because the fact is God has always made this first priority clear throughout his word. I mean, the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. Everything we have is everything, everything we have is to be devoted to him. And this theme is extended and substantiated by Jesus himself. You remember that clever lawyer walks up to Jesus and says, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? He quotes the Shema. We hear it in the beginning of communion service every time we have communion together. You love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. My friends, there's nothing more important than loving God. And I, I fear that if we don't really truly confront ourselves on this, we'll find ourselves at the end of our lives with all our, our good works on the ash heap. It's explicit in our Lord's dealings with Mary and Martha. I think we're going to do this text sometime in Pentecost. I can't wait. It's Luke chapter 10. Martha urged Jesus to send Mary to the kitchen. Stop wasting her time sitting at your feet at, G at the Jesus Bible study. Because there's dusting to do. There's vacuuming to do. There's food to prepare. There's all the things we do. We've got all these guests, Martha, Mary. Get up. Help me. Lord, tell her. He says, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion. My, Mike Bullmore, who, who's the pastor of Crossway Church, said it so well, because even Mike struggles with this. We all struggle with doing before being in the Lord, being with the Lord. And yet God wants us to be doers and to feed his sheep and love him first. Mike Bullmore said, there's nothing wasted in God's economy. Nothing. This is not wasted time. That's why I appreciate you're here. For some of you, it was probably a struggle to get here for whatever reason. doesn't matter. You did it. You pushed through and you're here and God will bless you and speak to you through his word and as we gather in prayer together today. So we need to reflect honestly upon our lives in the light of Peter's words in verse 17 when Peter says, Lord, you know everything. <laughs> you know, in Peter's previous affirmations of Jesus' omniscience, verses 15 and 16, he uses a strong Greek word that meant Jesus knew every detail, but here he switches to a word that means more intimate, personal knowledge, oidas. As if to say, Lord, you've walked with me. Y you know me. You really know me. The good, the bad, and the ugly about me. In every way. Ladies and gentlemen, we can bank on that, that the Lord knows us, good, bad, and ugly. If we're honest about our love, he'll affirm what exists and will challenge and enable us to go deeper in him. He doesn't leave us to our own devices. 
Some of us may experience constant frustration in our walk with the Lord simply because our priorities are wrong. Perhaps your job is all you can think about. Perhaps your kids, your spouse is all you can think about. Your family is all you can think about. Your financial portfolio, your business, your golf game, your fishing boat, your season tickets. Martin Luther stated that the busier that he was, the more necessary it was for him to get into his prayer closet. Imagine yourself standing alone on the shore with Jesus. Just you and Jesus. With the Sea of Eternity stretching on as a shimmering backdrop like the Sea of Tiberias. Jesus looks at you, knowing all the good, all the bad, all the ugly, and says, do you love me? Without comparing yourself to anyone else, that's what we try to do, right? Don't compare yourself to anybody else. Do you really love me? Do you have a deep, abiding affection for Jesus Christ? We must. We must love him before, above, and beyond anything or anyone else. Uh, So this begs a question. How do we do this? I mean, really, how do we do this? How do we apply this in our lives? How do we make Jesus the highest priority in all our lives? Step number one. Be honest about the level of your love for Jesus Christ. Be honest. And that all starts with our repentance. Because there's lots of good moral people out there, right? But the moral person repents because they're afraid. They're afraid of hell. They just want to escape eternal fire insurance. And so they repent so they can be moral. This isn't what Jesus is talking about. The Christian repents because they know they've been loved. They've been accepted. Do you love me? I loved you on the cross. And that's why a Christian repents. We repent by saying, I've been loved, and his love will never change. Look what he did for me. As a result, how can I continue to live like this? How can I continue to treat Jesus like this? That's real repentance, and that will cleanse you, and that will change you. It's looking at the sin as wrong in itself, and it's looking to your Savior, Jesus Christ, and not yourself. Where the moral person is just looking at themselves. Huge difference. So the first step is to be honest about the level of your love for Jesus and truly repent. Secondly, spend time with Him. You spend time with people you love. Spend time with Him in His Word. Spend time in His prayer. And if you struggle with that, going into the fall, come join me in the journey group. We ask that question every other week, right, crew? Those of you guys who have done this with me? Every other week. How's your personal worship time? I mean, I have people who are journey group graduates who go, I'm still struggling with this. Welcome to the club. 
it's a struggle we all have. You know, know, my youngest son walked into my study last year and goes, Dad, you got a Master of Divinity degree? That is so cool. I go, why is that cool? You're Master of all things divine. I go, what do you think that means? Well, divine things. I go, so what? I still struggle like you do. You better you could ask me, how's your quiet time, Dad? <laughs> how's your time in the Word? How's your time in prayer? How's your, your service to your mother? Checking in on my grown kids. I told you, I'm an idiot. I need help. So do you, right? See, there's a little bit of Peter in each and every one of us. And that's what gives us a victory to walk out of here, friends, because Peter is completely restored. Stay tuned. It's going to get really good next week. It's going to get even better the following week, and it's getting better the next week. Because when we get to Peter being fully restored and John being fully restored and wrapping up his gospel and Jesus is ascended into heaven and they wait on the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's restored, oh, the church takes off. Stay tuned. Because nothing is wasted in God's economy and it's our ultimate priority. And so as you go about your day after you've spent time with the Lord, recognize that your vocation is a calling as well. Your vocation is a calling by the Lord. God has placed you in that vocation, even in retirement, to do everything you do unto him. Mother Teresa modeled this so well for us. When she was in the depths of despair in Calcutta, ministering to people who were dying, cleaning their wounds, she would imagine herself cleaning the wounds of Jesus. When she was scrubbing a floor, She would imagine she's scrubbing Jesus' floor. So when you're doing the vacuum around the house, you're vacuuming Jesus' floor. When you're mowing the grass, you're mowing Jesus' grass. When you're washing your car, you're washing Jesus' car. When you're cooking dinner, you're cooking Jesus' dinner. When you're challenged by that cantankerous co-worker or that cranky kid classmate in school they're in jesus image and you're modeling jesus for them so we need to have a conscious sense that we serve because we love him because he first loved us and when he says to us do you love me We could say, Lord, you know everything about me. You know that I love you. Help me to love you more. And he will. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, as we come to our prayer time and the end of our service where we take up an offering, I pray that each and every one of us and you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would help us to offer ourselves completely up to you. Every aspect of our lives, for nothing is hidden from your sight. And as the offering is taken up, we will look at that basket. Yeah, sure, some of us will give some money, but all of us need to give you all of our heart.
as we have learned from Peter, and to prioritize that love for you and thus be fully restored to you. So we can know the joy of those who truly repent and the affirmation and love of those who sincerely trust in the good news of Jesus. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.